everybody. Coming to you with another episode today. Like I said in the last uh, in the last transaction there, today we were going to be talking about communications with investors, talking to investors about your product and ultimately what it all comes down to, right? Which is the pitch. The pitch is everything. It's how they vet you. It's what they think of you. It's how they see your project. We're going to talk about the pitch and we're going to talk about legitimate conversations we had with investors today. We're going to do that. You know, we're going to be introducing some new characters into the story right now, too. So, like I said, if you've never heard me say it before, it's always about the people. Okay, okay, okay. So, you know, last week we talked about uh, preparing to meet with the investor and uh, a... Uh, in our conversation we had with, uh, I can't even remember the fake name I gave him at this point, but Steve Polk, the conversation with Steve Polk, who kind of prepared us for what's to come with an investor. And so, yeah, we're, we're just going to jump right into this, right? So, you know, John Borden and I, we had the product, we had, we had conceptually made the product and we had, uh, an idea of what it was going to cost for the project based on the size we wanted to do. And we wanted to go really small, right. And kind of ease into things and, and kind of, you know, very narrowly just tease this out to a few people, see who would buy it, who wouldn't buy it, and, uh, engage, you know, would there be any, any real interest in the product. So it went in two different directions, right? So I began putting information about the product out and asking if people would be interested in it. Um, and then on the flip side of that, it was figuring out what, uh, you know, John, I, John was, you, you know, looking for people that we could, we could talk to, you know, about, you know, hey, we got this project, we have this idea, um, we're going to build a plant, you know, do you want to invest in it, right? So, you know, the first, the first people we talked to were, um, they did really well. And they were usually corporate executives that currently worked for a corporation that had a history of investing in startups. So, Naturally, for us, we kind of viewed any and everybody, any and everybody as being a potential investor, right? We set some ground rules as far as what we wanted, and I really leaned on John on this because he understands it. I don't, right? I'm, I'm a spray guy. I'm a lawn jockey. This is this is a big boy grown up world business, and truthfully, it's just over my head. Ah, uh, it yeah, it's outside of my area of expertise or even understanding really. So there wasn't a whole lot I could offer. The only thing I understood, my part of it was that I could talk about the product really well, really freely, because I understood it from, uh, from a very, 
a very minute level. And this is before the University of Minnesota study showing uh, biochar co-composted with manure and the effect it had on slowly releasing nutrients and uh, uh, creating an uh, quote-unquote en- enhanced efficiency effect. So I was really just going off a off of faith of these are all individual products I've used that were that did well on their own. So if we put them all together in one, what exactly? Uh, it, it, well, we knew exactly what it would do, but uh, you know. It's, it's like the first time you spray along with herbicide. The first time you spray along with herbicide, you're really nervous about it. And you double check and you triple check and you just still have this lingering feeling that you don't know how it's going to turn out. That's exactly where we were. Well, at least where I was. But because I had used all these products individually, I just was, I was really confident in the product. And, and we put it on grass. I saw what it did. I knew we had something special, so I could talk about it in that regard. So as we moved into these first conversations with investors, um, always, 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 just like uh, the way I talked about earlier um, with, with Steve Polk, the first question was, what is your target market? Because, because when you would begin to describe your product, usually they would start off like this. Oh, so you want to put your product in Home Depot? No. Okay, then who's going to buy your product? Uh, lawn care operators. You talking about the guy that mows my yard? No. I'm talking about the people that actually treat lawns for a living. And he's like, who? Everybody, everybody, I would just say he, but really everybody would be like, how many of those companies are there out there? And... Now, falling back on that research I had to do because of that conversation with Steve Polk, I could say, you know, there are approximately 474,000 application companies in the United States. Like, oh, okay. And I knew their fertilizer expenditures would be approximately 10% of their revenue. And I knew that the industry as a whole bought, for the lawn care market, somewhere around um, two billion dollars or more of a fertilizer. So, when you explain, when you explain it that way, um, those are real tangible numbers that they understand, right? So, two billion dollars to me just sounds like a number you type into a calculator. It's not something I can wrap my head head around. these type people, they hear $2 billion and and they know exactly what the value of that is. So, you know, when I stayed on this, you know, 2016, there's 474,000 companies, companies that made up uh, $2 million of revenue or less represent 87% of the entire uh, industry. The average company size was $217,000. And if we're targeting companies in the $200,000, $2 million range specifically, that would still leave us 37% of the market or 175,000 companies. So if 175,000 companies who average 26 tons of fertilizer a year were purchasing, you you can do the math on that. That's over 2 million tons of fertilizer. They're going to be going out, right? So, and we didn't even want a plant that big, but it, 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 
again, this is just establishing a baseline for these types of people to be able to put a, 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 a mental mindset into the uh, financial viability of the industry because really nobody knows this industry exists. So with that, you know, typically that would, that would send you down a wormhole of, of different, different questions that would be asked, right? So um, uh, where do you get your raw materials? Okay, well, you know, urea is commodity. It's going to come out of Port of New Orleans. Um, ammonium sulfate is a byproduct of uh, the steel industry, so that's going to come from uh, um, Honeywell, uh, ferrous sulfate would be more of a specialty product, so that's also a byproduct of the steel industry. So if we're using heptahydrate, heptahydrate may come from Michigan. If we're using uh, monohydrate, monohydrate may come from uh, Cape Girardeau, uh, the only ferrous sulfate monohydrate manufacturer in the United States for region life sciences, and may have to go there and get it. Um, as far as, and then, you know, of course, the, the backbone of our product is the poultry manure and biochar, so where do you get your biochar? Okay, we get our biochar from our um, uh, from in, in at at the time, right? So we ended up choosing our our investors, right, who are vertically integrated, which allowed us to be vertically integrated with the biochar piece. But at the time, we weren't going that route, so we were having to source biochar, and we were leaning on farmers to be able to. It, originally, the idea was was that um, we would pay the farmers a certain amount of money for their um, for their material if it had a certain percentage of biochar in their bedding, right? And otherwise, if it didn't have that percentage of biochar, then we would not be interested in using it. So it was kind of an unsustainable model because one, where were the farmers going to get it? We would do our best to place it with them, but ultimately, we would kind of make that their. Um, their decision. Um, the only thing we required was a certificate of analysis to show, you know, how much fixed carbon, not just total carbon, but fixed carbon they had in their, um, in their, in their in product. So that was one thing that would always cause people to trip up and they go down. So, okay, so you don't control the biochar. How much biochar is there? How long will the biochar last? What happens if you run out of biochar? How many manufacturers of the biochar of biochar are in the, are in the United States? How sustainable is biochar production? Is um, is biochar something you would like to be vertically integrated with? Uh, would you rather do batch-based gasification or would you rather do a continuous uh, process process? And those questions would come at you that fast. So, you know, you you have to have the answers, right? So um, bio, uh, biochar is now a new thing that's coming from the renewable energy sector where they're taking cellulistic material and they're paralyzing uh, it and capturing the hydrocarbons that are released. So um, there's more and more biochar being generated every day as there was the previous 10 years because uh, more and more focus is being placed on renewable energy. And as the, um, the market for renewable energy increases, so will the uh, availability of biochar. Uh, do we want to be vertically integrated? Yes. And if we did want to be vertically integrated, we would want a continuous process process that is going to allow for uh, continuous production of biochar. And then it would turn into, okay, so are you going to power your plant by a biochar plant if you are going to be vertically integrated? Well, yeah, we hope to power our plant one day by a biochar production facility. All right. And, and 
you know, okay, so how, how are you going to hedge your bets if uh, if oil goes to the roof? Then urea is going to go to the roof. How, how is urea commoditized? What, what are the biggest influences on urea commodity? And I'd have to answer, uh, urea commodity is going to be developed by, uh, is, is basically set by oil prices as well as natural gas prices. Um, is that, okay, so what if oil prices go up to the roof? What if natural, uh, uh, what if, uh, natural gas prices go up to the roof? How is that going to affect the fertilizer industry? Well, well, it, it does. It negatively affects the fertilizer industry. But, uh, however, it, as evidenced by the last economic recession we had, 2008, the lawn care industry still remained, uh, still actually grew through the economic downturn, even though prices were significantly inflated. Okay, why did they? Uh, why did they? Did it continue to grow? Uh, well, I can only theorize, but I theorize that uh, a home is a safe space, and therefore, um, even though cuts were being made, people would still spend money on the preservation of their property because even though the world around them was falling apart, there at home, everything was okay. So, I hope that kind of paints the picture of the types of questions that were that we're going in. Okay. You know, so right now we've just kind of covered a portion of the raw material parts and then it would even go, go further. So we'll dive a little further into the raw material part. So when you get chicken litter, how do you, uh, how do you ensure the consistency of the litter? Uh, what do you mean the consistency of the litter? Well, you know, so if you have one litter, uh, one, one batch of birds that were fed one feed, and then you had another batch of birds that were fed a different feed, uh, what would the difference in the litter be? Uh, okay, well, um, all the chickens are fed the exact same feed because it's controlled by the uh, chicken producer, and the farmer does not have uh, ability to control variances in the feed. Okay, who sets the diet? The diet is set by um, you know whoever the the owner of the of the farm is. So we'll say like Tyson or Purdue Farms. Uh, Tyson or Purdue Farms, they set the feed that the that the birds actually eat. Okay, if they set the feed, what if they change the recipe? Well, we'll have to cross that road when they get there. Okay, but what if they include something toxic in the soil to it? Well, if they included something toxic in the soil, then it would likely be toxic to the bird too, so I doubt they would do that. If you're not that fast with your answers, chances are you're going to be glossed over because it will give the perception that you have not thought out every possible aspect of this business. And when I say of this business, I mean of your business. You know, I, my big thing that I always wanted asked was, you know, who who are your biggest competitors? Because that I knew really well. I knew that really well. And, you know, I could kind of go through at least what I had on my, on my, my pitch deck. Um, because the, 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 the part of my pitch was actually, you know, talking about competitors, right? So here's, you know, what I considered the uh, the competitors that I would work with um, with with this. So Miramichi Green, uh, you know, Miramichi Green is a biochar compost blend that is sold through Site One, which is a wholesaler for the turf and mineral industry. Their product is left in raw form, therefore lacks bulk density. Um, it does not spread through conventional equipment. In an effort to bolster bulk density, it is blended with compost. However, this too creates an issue. It does not free flow through standard hoppers and top dressers commonly seen in the industry. This product ultimately lacks scalability with lawn care operators due to its difficult to spread 
due to its difficulty to spread as well as its price. Then we would go to Anuvia. Anuvia is a multi-nutrient homogenous turf and ornamental fertilizer that utilizes human waste biosolids, a la Morlorganite, to deliver turf grass-specific inputs. Because the high amount of pharmaceuticals that have began appearing in biosolids, media attention has been drawn in a negative light towards the use and sustainability of, bio, of biosolids. Additionally, their product process limits them to uh, the ability to make product formula changes. Healthy Grow. Healthy Grow is a blended chicken manure that is infused with strains of bacillus bacteria or even infused with organics. While the chicken manure offers agronomic value with both macro and micronutrient inputs, the additional supply of bacteria creates an unnatural it creates an unnatural balance of soil biology that could ultimately lead to an overconsumption of soil organic matter and ultimately a depleted nutrient-poor soil. Uh, Screaming Green. Screaming Green is a blended fertilizer that utilizes biosolids, chicken manure, ammoniacal nitrogen, sulfur-coated urea, and potassium sulfate. While the nutrients of the bag are good as individual products, blending that many inputs in a single bag often leads to settling and particle separation, and this results in an application that often, leaves, that often leaves valuable square footage with too much or too little of each of the inputs due to segregation or prill separation. Um, Earthworks is a blended chicken manure that is enhanced with humates and meth- methylene urea. Uh, the product, the com- major complaint with this product is, is that it's unrefined, is that the particle size has not been dropped fine enough before it goes through the agglomeration process, often leading to uh, wide variances in missized particle sizes, uh, inability to flow through application equipment, and the fertilizer cost of two to three times the cost of its direct competitors. Um, and then at the time, we had heard of Harold's that sold a pelletized biochar, but in, it turns out it was actually it, it was it was not from Harold's. It was from a different company, and they they actually bound it up with wax, so it had this really unique texture to it. It wasn't it wasn't like anything. Um, um, it was I, I just I can't I can't describe it, but it was it was like a wax with a little bit of biochar in it. And originally, I thought I thought it was distributed by Harold's, but it, it turned out it was not. In fact, I never did find out who that was. But I said, uh, you know, Harold's is a distributor that sells a pelletized biochar. The process relies on wax as a binder, which leads to inconsistent release in the soil. Wax being hydrophobic will force will be forced to rely on heat to provide critical degradation of the binder before release can begin. The unpredictability in the release equates to varying response time. Without an accurately forecasted response time, businesses will lose trust in the product's overall ability. So product defense for me really was everything, and, and it still is. You think about it from a sales perspective, right, trying to sell uh, a fertilizer like like Carbon X, you know, so I would say the, 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 the latest one that we oftentimes get compared with right now is uh, Propeat. And, and Propeat is a great product. And, you know, the, the one thing I would say to that is that in terms of organic matter, which is going to be more beneficial to the soil, um, because they're going to have equal carbon content because of the amount of biochar we have in the product, plus uh, uh, the organic matter that comes from poultry manure. So the question then becomes, what is uh, the, the most sustainable and effective organic matter to use? Is it poultry manure or is it peat? And I think you could ask any farmer on that, that the answer is actually poultry manure. So as far as a carrier, a homogenized carrier of uh, and a carbon-based component to carry um, a conventional fertilizer, 
Um, I would much rather have uh, poultry manure, and then you get the added benefits of the organic coating that occurs when co-compost with biochar uh, to give you that added advantage of nitrate capture that you get from the porous structure, a highly adsorptive material that is biochar, where with peat, you just get an organic material. Although it is rich in carbon, in order for the carbon to become available, it's going to have to go through a mineralization process. So it's not going to be readily available. It's not going to have that, that immediate effect that biochar would. It's not going to have any nutrient value like poultry manure would. Product defense is everything. It really is everything. And you know, from my perspective, anybody that knows me on a very personal level knows that I refuse to put my name on anything that I do not think is the best. I'm hyper-competitive hyper competitive, whether it's sports, any aspect of my life, I am hyper competitive. And it goes back all the way to when I was a kid, my brother and I, my goodness, we would fight and kick, kick each other's asses because we were both just so hyper competitive. You know, we were both athletes growing up and that was just what we did. We competed. I was involved in martial arts for a very long time, and it was just a highly competitive atmosphere, and that's where I really thrive. And I see it now as as an adult when I'm looking for a fertilizer I could put my name on. I want to make sure it is the most complete thing I I can possibly build, right? Given uh, the set of limitations we have, which would uh, just be based off off of our uh, either square footage or or, uh, cost of equipment, I know that the product we put out is the absolute best thing that we can personally deliver. I'm not going to say it's the best fertilizer in the world. It's not. Every fertilizer is a tool. But what I am going to say is that that is the best thing that can come out. Uh, that, that type of formulation is the absolute best product that we can deliver given our setup. And um, in terms of other products that are out there that I would consider competing products, I feel confident that the results we will generate, will at least sell itself against that in a side-by-side comparison. So, you know, big shout-out to even some of the the homeowners and DIY guys that have done so against, you know, like running, you know, for instance, the X-Green against against ammonium sulfate. I mean, what a sight to see there. I mean, there was a a very significant difference that um, they uh, uh, documented over at the law forum. That was G-Man over on the law forum who documented that side-by-side result and like, you know, wow, great. You know, that's awesome. That's awesome. So you start comparing that against other carbon carrier fertilizers, you know, and uh, yeah, all that, that's, that's exactly, you know, the whole point of using a fertilizer, right, is you know, the cost-to-reward ratio, cost-to-reward ratio, cost-to-performance ratio. You know, then it was, it was kind of interesting. We ran in, you know, you, you talk to any and everybody because any and everybody's uh, a, a potential asset, right? So, you know, we found someone in Kentucky that specialized in finding money for agricultural startups. And it got really interesting really fast because we only had to give the pitch to him one time and go through the whole process of answering all the questions down to the most minute details, go through all the financials with them. And then it was actually him who went out and made the pitches to people. And this is where it got really exciting because every day you would get an update. Hey, uh, I need an NDA. Please put this name, uh, address the NDA to this one. An NDA is a non-disclosure agreement, which actually is you know pretty worthless. But 
it makes everybody feel good when you when you get an NDA, right? So, um, you know, we'd come up with this. Um, we'd send out an NDA and wait to hear back. And, you know, you just hope that you got a meeting. And, and so this one person would be like, okay, hey, send an NDA here. Okay, um, I need another NDA that's going to this one. Um, okay, I need another NDA that's going to this one. And then, and then hopefully you get the call that, you know, hey, so-and-so wants to sit down with you. And, I mean, that was exactly what happened. It happened several times. And, uh, like, I'll give you an example here. We had sat down, well, we, you know, we, we, we got to the point of sitting down with this one company, and they were interested in doing something with this. However, what they wanted was, um, one, they wanted one year to vet the process. Now, mind you, this is in April of 2018. We have to begin construction in June, or at least have funding in place by June so we can make the orders for the equipment so we can deliver in the spring, right? So they wanted one year to go through the entire process, and we had to purchase all of our equipment from this one specific supplier in Eastern, I'm sorry, in, yes, in Eastern Kentucky. We explained the situation we were in and they would not budge on it. But just, nope, doesn't matter. It's, it's a one-year vetting process, take it or leave it. So unfortunately, we had to walk away from it and you hated it because you knew they were on board. And because it was April, you know, we knew we were really, really running out of time. You know, in, in October, we had it on a napkin. By January, we had what we thought was a solid financial plan. Um, and then, you know, for months and months, you just, you pitch and you pitch to, to these corporate execs and you go through these same exercises. And so you get really, really, really good at, at owning your product. You get really good at explaining exactly what you do and how well you do it. And, you know, you ask for help when you can get it. So from January through April, you know, we probably talked to 80 or 90 different groups, 80 or 90 different companies or representative of companies. And it wasn't, we didn't get our first okay until April, until four months into it, we or three months into it, we got our first okay. Like, all right, we're ready to go to the next step. And it just didn't fit because of the year wait. We couldn't do it. We could not wait another year. And they didn't care. They didn't get it. Like It just didn't register the importance of that date. So with only two months remaining, it's back to the drawing board. And it is so painful to know that if... I could just be patient until then we could make this happen. And so you start to question your sanity of like, okay, are we spearheading this? Are we taking this too fast? Are we doing things too soon? Are we not doing it too soon? Um, um, uh, what's the right thing to do in this situation? And the truth is, is that nobody really knows you, you, nobody can really give you that answer except yourself. There's too many variables in too many different situations to be able to say anything really one way or the other. It just, you, you've, you've got to figure it out for yourself. And really what it all comes down to is how, 
how how comfortable you feel with this situation. Because if there's any lingering room of doubt or unknown or uncertainty, it's best to move on to the next potential investor. So I'm going to leave it there about that's what it was like with communicating with investors. And we're going to move on to, we're going to talk about the people. And we're going to talk about how pivotal, how pivotal and how important some of these people are. Next week, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about a guy named Sean Stockman. Sean Stockman was really interesting. And uh, we'll tell the story next week. But, you know, we did... We got started on an airplane together, and Sean was a big help, still is a big help to John Borden and myself. You never know when you're going to meet your next potential investor. And that's not to say Sean was the the investor he wasn't, but Sean brought a whole new set of skills to us to allow us to be able to eventually find our investor and get the type of deal we wanted. So next week, I'm going to talk about Sean Stockman. I appreciate you tuning in this week. Y'all take it easy.